Hey everyone, I'm Anthony Jambroni. Welcome to Storied Cities, a podcast where we explore the stories our cities tell and the stories we tell about our cities. So we sit down with people from across the vocational spectrum, whether business owners, ministry leaders, nonprofit workers, teachers, or neighbors. People who are learning to love the places they live and the people that reside within it. Because ultimately, that's how we foster new narratives, new plot lines, new stories about our cities. There's an impulse within humanity for neighboring. And this is where they call it the front porch phenomena. That, that on the front porch is where we internalize spirituality. The front porch is where we internalize both celebration and struggle, uh, victory and challenge, those sorts of things. Is it happens on the front porch. So what happens when you eliminate that? So you just heard a little excerpt from a conversation that you're going to hear from today. Uh, Dustin White is the guy I spent some time with. little formal uh, background of him. He's a, a church planner and pastor at Radial Church, which is uh, a diverse community of faith in Canton, Ohio. He also serves as the executive director of Flourish 44703, which is a nonprofit community development cor corporation which exists to help the residents of Canton's 44703 zip code spiritually, socially, and economically flourish through the formation and acquisition of residential, commercial, and community spaces. So he's got, uh, Dustin's got his hands in a lot of different things, but hopefully what you'll see from um, this interview is that uh, it's not in many places. He's got his hands in a lot of different things, but it's kind of uh, limited to uh, 44703, his own neighborhood in which he lives um, and not only is he um, striving himself to be rooted in that neighborhood, he's helping others in his community uh, learn to be present and uh, listen to the neighborhood in which they live. And in many ways, that's kind of what our conversation is about uh, today, as you'll see. So maybe you've never heard of uh, Canton before. Maybe the only thing you know about Canton is the Football Hall of Fame. Um, from this conversation, you'll, you'll not only get a little bit of uh, who Canton has been, but in many ways who it's becoming um, through people like Dustin who are learning to love um, the place in which they live and, and create a new narrative that's birthed out of that love. So thanks for listening and hope you guys enjoy. So I was uh, reading a little bit about you like prior to this conversation right. and uh, most of which uh, was found like on this on your blog sure, on Radio Church. Sure. And uh, there was this story about, uh, I feel like it was a good entrance into this conversation we're having today, which is um, like kind of about place and faith and what it means for faith communities to be rooted mm -hmm. in uh, their neighborhoods, their cities, uh, what have you. And you told this like hilarious story right. about growing up. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you could yeah. tell that for us as kind of like an introduction. Yeah, into this yeah, conversation. yeah. So my 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 parents actually split when I was young, and uh, my dad handling the divorce didn't do so like most men do. You know, buying the crazy sports car, all the mm -hmm. toys. My dad started collecting exotic, rare animals, most most of which were illegal and even deadly. Uh, but at the same time, I think he had made it his life's mission that like he was going to make the proverbial man out of me. It was, to, it was time to grow up or you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So he took all of my stuffed animals away that I would sleep with at night. So I'd have all the, you know, like typical four-year-old kid, you'd have animals in bed with you to, yeah. you know, in case that's you get a normal scared. thing. Yeah. That's right. Because okay. you get scared with in the middle of the night. Yeah. So they're gone. And so I, I need to like think through some problem solving things, right? Real quick as a four year old. And so all my stuffed animals are gone. And then I had the the thought, this epiphany of like, whoa, I got real animals out in the living room. Why don't I just go get one of those to cuddle with? <laughs> one of the exotic animals. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I, I went out and like the fish were the most appealing thing I could see. And they were big and, you know, colorful. So I scurried up the entertainment center and I got a net that was beside the fish tank and I scooped out a fish and I took it to bed with me. And then the next night when I got scared, I'd go back and I'd scoop out some fish and I'd take it back to bed with me. And this went on for days and days and days and days. And my dad was noticing that each night there are fewer and fewer fish in his tank. And I think at first he 
had deduced there, there's probably predation happening in the tank. <laughs> like, uh, then the smell started coming out of my room. Mm. And so he comes into my room and he's looking around thinking like, what is this? And he flings open my, my comforter to my bed, the blankets, and he finds the remnants of this cuddle cemetery. <laughs> So just dozens of dead fish that who knows how much they cost him to buy are just littered throughout my bed. Oh, my. And in the most loving way, you know, a father can, right? Because I think he was trying to like hold back laughter, but yeah. also realizing the dollars and cents that were in my bed. And But he just said like, buddy, you can't, you can't take them out of their water. They need to stay in their water. But um the the reality is 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 that actually that left a, a in more ways than one uh, an indelible indelible mark on my life mm. uh, and one that formed even how I internalize the world around us and and I think it speaks to ministry right like that mm. that our churches have been ripped out of their environment our churches have mm. are like fish that have often been ripped out of their water. Uh, and like the fish, outside of their environment, they start to asphyxiate. Mm. Uh, they actually uh, lose the life uh, that they were intended to have. Mm. Um, we have churches uh, across the landscape in our North American context that are not placed, that they are not immersed in their environment. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that causes a lot of uh, questions for us and, and opens up a lot of conversations to, to weigh through. Like, what does it mean uh, when the local church is not localized? Mm. What does it mean when our churches are destination-based churches? The question is, is what, what happens when we're leaving the, the very real challenges that are in our own communities, our own neighborhoods, uh, to, to go participate in something somewhere else? Yeah. Um, it raises the other question of have we have we exited away? Have we had an exodus away from the problems of the rest of humanity that we have to commute to find problems? Hmm. Uh, so, so thinking through place, thinking through uh, really uh, this action of localizing the local church. Mm -hmm. uh, we've neutered that that expression. The, the local church, local to what? Local to whom? Hmm. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And my mind automatically goes back to like, you know, um, you hear about, and you read in history books or you talk to your grandparents about a time when, like, people didn't really live beyond their neighborhood right. or right. town or right. whatever. And maybe it was even before, like, suburbia or, like, urban sprawl or right. whatever. Um, but that's kind of what my mind goes to right. automatically when I hear you talking is, like, Oh, there was kind of this time when people just lived where they were. And part of it right. was transportation. Not everyone had cars, whatever right. it was. And um, for a number of different reasons, the church included, but also even more broadly than that, like right. we've uh, like lived beyond where our home is, right. where we work, right. whatever. Um, and, 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 and like, again, some, some of the programmatic uh, curiosities, some of the programmatic... Uh, problems, we'd even say, uh, problem solving, uh, things that the, the church is wrestling with mm. arise from the lack of being placed. Even, even if we take the small group phenomenon as, as a small uh, microcosm of this, mm. uh, the reality is, is that, as you pointed out, uh, 60, 70 years ago, folks lived in kinship networks within proximity to one another, right? And so what was the end of the day? After, after you got off work or after you got home from school, you walked back home and you might not even make it home yet. You might end up at at a neighbor's you know house on the front porch and chatting. I mean, you might right. chat at three or four different houses on the porch and you hear the the victories that are, so to speak, in someone's life, the things that they're celebrating, but you're also hearing the challenges and the struggles that they're facing too. Uh, sociologist uh, like Ed Hall in the 60s and talking through proxemics, uh, Joseph Myers in the early 2000s have talked about this, that the actual, there's, there's an impulse within humanity for neighboring. And this is where they call it the front porch phenomena. That, that on the front porch is where we internalize spirituality. The front porch is where we internalize both celebration and struggle, uh, victory and challenge, those sorts of things. It's, it happens on the front porch. So what happens when you eliminate that? Well, uh, what they talk about, uh, what Myers particularly talks about, is in the late 1960s through the 70s, there's the advent of the self-help phenomenon. And they created faux front porch environments and 
folks' living rooms. They would set out plates of cheese and hors d'oeuvres. They'd arrange seats in a circle in the living room and have folks, they, they would like kind of manipulate a faux version of this. 10, 15, 20 years later, the church goes, oh, this that that self-help thing works. Let's do a small group. And, and we're still mimicking this to today, but it all goes back to the same the same uh, initiative uh, that, or the same kind of indicator that that we have churches that are not placed. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, in other conversations we've had, you bring this re- research to bear, and I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. so helpful to see like a trajectory right. of where the church has come, but also wider culture. I think that's good. So I think you were like hinting at what are some of the problems that arise. Um, but before we even get to some of those other things yeah. you were talking about, I want to um, go back to that story of your childhood and yeah. make the connection right. between like, you know, that the lesson you learned uh, about fish being out of water right. and the jump um, to like what that means for the church. What happened in between that time yeah. like for you that kind of inspired that thought um, where this like very raw experience had something to do <laughs> with yeah. uh, the church and faith right. and place. I mean, to me, in my eyes, I remember at the same time that I'm robbing fish out of a fish tank to cuddle with my dad's, um, I remember my mom had to save up money. I mean, she saved for months to rent a VCR for my birthday party, right? Like, we ate popcorn, not because it was cool, but because that's that's what she could put on the table. And then when she got remarried, we moved into a very affluent suburbs, affluent closet community. And all of a sudden, I went from having to, you know, we're my experience was my mom renting a VCR to now I have a TV in my room. Like it was the craziest thing. And so just the, that polarizing sort of experience as a child made me sensitive, I think to place. Um, and then, you know, grew up, um, pretty typical story, uh, met, uh, who would become my wife, met the woman who became my wife, we get married and we were living in an apartment that was by uh, Malone University, which is where I got my undergrad, where she got her undergrad. And there was a man uh, sleeping across the street outside from our house, and I realized I, I don't get Jesus without this guy too. Um, so we started inviting folks into our house, and you know, um, just trying to practice hospitality, really winging it in terms of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And had no idea actually what we were doing. We were just trying to fumble through and be as faithful as we could to the folks living around us. Um, but it led us to to think, you know, what we, we we should probably think of and learn from the folks that have been doing this for years. So we started looking at long term uh, sort of experiences, long term programs where we could learn how to actually neighbor well. And we found this program called Mission Year. Um, and so it's a domestic, it's a U.S. domestic, uh, typically urban uh, experience where 20 and 30-somethings are placed into urban neighborhoods and live alongside uh, the, the disadvantaged and disenfranchised residents there. And so we were placed in Atlanta, Georgia, and while there, uh, really felt that Something God was we and we from from the the start we we had the sense that something God was doing there would be birthed back back home in Canton, and so we went through that year and just absorbed and soaked in as much as we could. Um, moved back home, and how we wound up in this neighborhood was 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 kind of. Uh, at, at first, not particularly a dignified, you know, sort of uh, story. It didn't seem to be that noteworthy, but now in hindsight, it's it's pretty remarkable. A friend of ours had said, "Hey, I know there's, uh, we were looking for a place to live. We just need a place to live." Moving back home, and uh, a friend of ours had said, "Hey, there's." a house that looks like this. There's a red van that parks out in front of it. There's, you know, well, what's the address? Well, I don't know. I just know it's on 10th Street. Well, which 10th Street? Canton has Northwest, Northeast, Southwest, Southeast. There's four different 10th Streets. I don't know which one it is. So I started at one end of town. I'm like, I'm going to drive. And we saw this house that was for sale. We had no business buying a house. We had no jobs lined up or anything like that. But um, the the proverbial stars line and we bought this house and really, really just decided we wanted a neighbor well. And so our neighbors welcomed us into their home 
um, into their homes and we started reciprocating with meals that we would host once a week. And over time, uh, these meals started to grow more and more and more till eventually uh, they evolved into what is now Radial Church hmm. in our neighborhood. Wow. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I love even going back to like uh, the story of you as a kid, mm-hmm. like that experience with place. I can relate with some of that myself living in a small town, but then yeah. going to like utter suburbia and yeah. like a uh, loss there in it's, some it, sense. It really is a culture shock, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it yeah. is. Um, so that's great. And, uh, we'll come back around to like radial and, yeah. and kind of what happened there. Um, but I'm curious, even going off that, like as you've, you guys have lived here, how long? About nine years or so we've been back. Yeah. So during that program at Missioneer, like you guys had grown up in this area and had yeah. just like very raw experiences growing yeah. up of like what it was like, what was good, what was hard. Um, but what were some of the key things that that program instilled beyond your experiences that you were bringing back? Uh, yeah. Retalented, as you said, like, yeah, yeah. to bring back to this area. Um, this, I, I think. Maybe the, even values. Yeah. You know, I, like, I think the big, well, I mean, in Mission Year, uh, you, the, every participant lives under the poverty level. So there's not uh, a paternalistic or pejorative sort of posture, right? Like you're living. And what do you mean by that? paternalistic or yeah yeah so i think describe that. I, I, I think paternalistic and patronizing or or both would would be classifications of how so many churches uh, not even thinking through it engage in ministry with folks who are in poverty or folks who are on the margins mm-hmm. that we have the answers we are still uh at a different position uh, than the folks who are there, uh, rather than actually working in solidarity alongside of one another. Mm-hmm. And so while there's even still uh, you know, an immense amount of privilege to say, I'm choosing to live under the poverty level, uh, I, I, I recognize that, but still... Right. There is the sense to say, like we're in this together. Yeah, mm-hmm. like this is this is our space that we are sharing. I think that's good. Um, it reminds me of uh, I had a seminary friend tell me about a book called White Man's Burden. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this yeah, book? Have you yeah, read it? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I have not read it, so I'm yeah, going to speak on it fantastic, anyway. Fantastic, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but my, uh, what I understand the premise of the book is, is that like uh, kind of speaking to that paternalistic mm-hmm. kind of mindset is that for years, not just the church, but America, Western Hemisphere, what have you, the mm-hmm. developed world right. really has um, had that mindset towards underdeveloped nations and countries and uh i think the idea is that like no country has ever been developed on aid right like right 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 and so i think it's that along with the idea that we can't the people who need to solve who have the most problems like in the under underdeveloped world like uh poverty or homelessness or hunger whatever right. all of these problems like the best people to solve those problems are the people, people who themselves. there yeah yeah the yeah. people themselves yeah so um so like for years we've had this uh like charity kind of like uh mindset yep. internationally domestically right right that uh says we like you said we have the answers right. uh, to your problems and in fact like this book suggests the best, the people with the solutions are the people with the problems. Right. Um, and yep. so I think that's like a major shift right? Uh, for the church, but right. for uh, the developed world well, as yeah. well. I mean, Rene Lenek, who is the inventor of the stethoscope, right? Mm-hmm. He has this fascinating quote and he says, I mean, and, and I don't think in our modern uh, concepts, we have any sort of understanding of how radical this was in the day and time, but he invented the stethoscope and he was ridiculed and mocked by his peers. All the other physicians would thought he was crazy. Like no one does. What are you doing? You know, they had the idea of again projecting uh, what they thought and uh, you know onto their patients. Uh, and he implored his his students and his peers, and with this quote that I think serves us well in ministry, he says, "Listen to your patients. They're telling you how to heal them." Um, we don't do a very good job listening to our, our people, right? Mm-hmm. If I think it's the same thing. They know the solutions. They We need to follow them, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think it's like a big, it's a shift from uh, kind of like being the hero of the story. Yeah. To, or like leader as like 
hero or whatever you want to say to like facilitate or empower sure affirmation yeah. of those people right right and organizer of those right. people right like that's kind of the shift that happens i think yeah and create creativity is birthed out of of problem solving right? right and so poverty is not a lack of resources poverty is a lack of creativity and if we don't give people the opportunity to to walk in in it then then we we perpetuate the same sort of uh, inequitable uh, relationships mm. and i think uh allow ourselves to walk in it yeah. like your experience yeah. was a missionary yep. which yep. i think is yep. extremely valuable that's great yeah um so going back to what i was originally going to ask which tell us a little bit about kin like what um you know in your experience here prior to that program after the fact that you've been living here for nine years now um after that like what's um you know what's challenging mm-hmm. about this city i think it's a rust belt city yep, yep. you know so i think uh there's a common narrative yes there among yeah. those cities among the clevelands the cantons the akrons yeah the detroits what have you yep. um there's a common narrative there but there's a distinctive one poor yep. can yep um but also what is beautiful what's good here what are the the things you guys see yeah so again there is a very much a rust belt heartbeat uh so if you go to a detroit if you go it's it's beyond what a midwestern heartbeat is it does feel different from a chicago or indy or or something i mean detroit toledo cleveland akron canton pittsburgh there is a rust belt heartbeat uh, and there's a pride in in, in it. Uh, I think what I would say is is like those other cities, Canton is fiercely loyal. The people of Canton are fiercely loyal. If you go to Cleveland, like you know, we are we the, the folks in Cleveland are fiercely loyal, and so that's definitely true here in Canton. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about Canton, uh, so we we are uh, what some folks have described as a micropolitan. Um, metro wise, we're, we're probably a little over half million folks here. Uh, but in the city, we've been seeing uh, an exodus out of the city. I mean, there's the population of in, in the, the city limits proper has been decreasing, uh, year after year over the last 40 to 50 years. Uh, and we could talk through what's been causing that, but, uh, Canton, I think as one of the DNA markers of us as a city is innovation. Uh, this is a highly innovative and creative town. Uh, in the 1880s, Stark County was the leading uh, exp- exporter of crops and agriculture for the whole country. Uh, wow. And then, you know, we have the Industrial Revolution, and suddenly uh, that, that can't be sustained anymore. And so we have to reinvent ourselves. Well, then we... Uh, are again in the Rust Belt, and so became a major exporter in steel and innovation. So Timken roller bearings and Hoover vacuum cleaners and and these sorts of standards came out of Canton. Hmm. Um, and of course, if you uh, ask anyone if anyone broadly knows of Canton, usually they know about it because of the Professional Football Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this sense of innovation and reinventing yourself and not giving up and rooting yourself here and being and being proud of where we come from is inherent in, in our DNA. Uh, but some of the challenges that we face um, are, are due to a lot of the systemic things that happened from our past. I mean, this was a, this was a very corrupt town in the 20s and 30s. Canton was known as Little Chicago because we were along the route between some major cities uh, and you had to go to Chicago to get to the New York. You had to come through Canton. And so this was a kind of a mob central uh, in the 20s and 30s. And so a lot of wealth passed through here, but it was a wealth that was corrupted. And it was a wealth that separated uh, folks along racial, ethnic, and class lines. And so, uh, actually, where you're sitting here in our living room today, uh, I can pull up the the map from 1935. This was a, a red-lined area, mm-hmm. um, and Canton is very distinct. You can go block by block. You can cross the street and realize this is a different place than over there. Um, like be- a couple streets over. 
Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or literally, if we walked behind, like behind in my backyard, the the very trees that are in my back, it, the neighbors in the street behind me uh-huh. are different than the trees that are on our street. They wow. they emphasized redlining by planting different trees. So if it was a neighborhood of color, you had maple trees. If it was a white neighborhood, they planted sycamore trees. And so there's still a marker to this day. You can see legitimately the fruits of racism still growing uh, in in our streets. Wow. And so uh, not uncommon to a lot of other cities when, when you have that sort of practices and policies in your town, uh, what inevitably ended up happening was white flight. Um, so lack of industry, a loss of jobs uh, compounded with, uh, with uh, racial discrimination and racial bias policy, racialization in our, in our city as a whole, we started to see decline. So Canton was designed really to be a city uh, within the proper city limits, our infrastructure, the, the, the built environment that's here, schools, all, all that sort of thing. We were built to be a city of anywhere, some, some folks will say as low as 150,000 to potentially up to 200,000, not, not quite a quarter million, but, but somewhere in there. We currently have 73,000. So we have half the amount of people for twice the amount of space. Yeah. And so that creates challenges in terms of current policy, different things like that. Um, but one of the, the bigger challenges that we have is, is that we haven't been updating our policy for, for a long, long time. So uh, with that, um, problems begin and challenges begin to exacerbate. It starts to accelerate and you kind of go into maintain mode rather than that innovative forward thinking DNA hmm. that is inherent to, to our city. Uh, so for example, we haven't updated our zoning policy since 1960. So we, we still have Jim Crow zoning. And so neighborhoods like mine were zoned differently than other neighborhoods. We were zoned that these sorts of resources and these sorts of places and how you participate in your place were different because we were determined to be a neighborhood of color. Hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Well, just a question on that. Like, how does that, how do the zoning laws of the past, just like a, a really specific thing here I'm interested in, like, how did those zoning laws of the past really affect people now? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, I'd imagine it's not in the same way, right? But like they still yeah. affect things. So I'm oh, curious sure. how here in Canton they yeah, still affect. Yeah, So it, actually, the federal zoning law was uh, crafted in another rust. Well, at that time it was a smaller rust belt city, but now part of Cleveland, Euclid, Ohio. So uh, the the initial thought of zoning uh, was to protect neighborhoods, right? That no one wanted to live next door to a tannery, right? That's mm-hmm. pumping out stenches and fumes and all this. Sort of thing. That was the initial concept of it. But very quickly, it became a tool to restrict who and what went in one neighborhood and who and what went in another. And so typically, um, what zoning would do was the resources, uh, the places needed for communities to thrive and flourish were allocated at these sections of town in these neighborhoods and not in these ones. So when you're saying that, you mean like businesses? Businesses, third places, libraries, schools, grocery stores, big one, right? We talk about food deserts a lot and even churches. So until radial church, we we were birthed uh, almost accidentally uh, as a house church and we're a network of house churches. Um, for the, the the majority of our existence thus far. But currently in our neighborhood, there are zero church buildings, right? Mm. Like this is this is a, a you know kind of a, a striking thing, but we were zoned that way. And the zoning has not been a redacted again since Jim Crow. So we, st- mm. we still have the same policies today. So you can see the decisions that were made 80, 70, 60, 50 years ago, we are still living with today. So when the neighbors, when we actually listen to our neighbors and say, hey, what's your dreams for our neighborhood? And they ask for a coffee shop or a corner pub or a barber shop or a grocery store or a community pool or those sorts of things, there's a legislation on our books that says, no, you can't have that there. Mm, Wow. So it's like, it's not that it's just not lucrative for those Right. Uh, things to be in that neighborhood. Right. It's that they literally cannot. Right. Exactly. It's like someone asks, hey, we want to start a coffee shop in this neighborhood. Yes. And they say no. Right. 
Right. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So that still happens. Yes. Yes. That's that's still a, cur- a current occurrence in your neighborhood. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, side note. Uh, I just saw yesterday, I wanted to give a shout out to the new coffee shop that's starting yes. in Cleveland. Yes. Is that in your neighborhood? Did they somehow get around that? No. I, well, oh. Oh, oh, the, the walkie-talkie? Yes, yes, walkie yes, talkie. yes. Yes, that's that's in 44703. We've been participating uh, with that process. So that was actually, you mentioned Flourish a bit ago. Yeah. That was yep. This is one of our newest uh, endeavors that we've been able to help uh, some friends uh, get started uh, to to kind of be their cheerleaders and that's awesome. connect with the uh, the resources needed to to make that happen. We're, yeah. we're excited. Yeah, that's awesome. I saw the coffee or the video yesterday yes, about the yeah, coffee shop. Yeah, so there's a little shout out, yeah, little commercial for them. Walkie talkie coffee. It's coming soon. Yeah, nice. That's great. Um, so that's that's good. That's all really helpful. I um wanted to go back to like you even asked the question or when you 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 talked about like. Uh, when you ask the question, what are your dreams for this neighborhood yeah. to neighbors, to people yeah. in your church, I assume. Um, when you guys were having those dinner parties yeah. um, that eventually kind of snowballed into what is now Radio Church, um, what were those conversations like? I assume like you were having those kind of conversations even at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, what were the dreams that were kind of coming out early on right. for the neighborhood? Uh, well, uh, I mean, right right away, they were dreams of place, mm. right? We we have a proliferation of predatory landlords uh, or slumlords, colloquially, right? Like, we have a proliferation of those. And so what that, that means is, is that folks don't have access to place. Um, if you are a person of color, you are statistically less likely to be able to secure a home loan. Even if you have the same income, credit score, those sorts of things, that that um, those are challenges that folks in my neighborhood face. So people were asking for access to place. Uh, they were ask, asking for, they were dreaming of opportunities to A, either improve their homes, B, be able to buy and purchase their home. They were asking for uh, different commercial businesses to be uh, in their community, uh, in our neighborhood. And they were asking for uh, community spaces, shared mm-hmm public or even private, but shared spaces where we could gather and establish relational capital with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, folks don't want to have to leave our neighborhood, um, but unfortunately, because our neighborhood doesn't have all of the resources uh, within it to thrive and flourish, folks are, folks, f- folks are forced to. Mm-hmm. When you lack access to transportation, uh, and we've built it that you have to be able to be mobile to get out, it makes it very, very challenging uh, to uh, to thrive and flourish. And so, yeah. a- access to place was—I mean, whether that's residential, commercial, community spaces—access to place was the kind of consistent theme hmm. that folks were asking for. Folks were a- also asking for some like pretty amazing things too that, that weren't like a roller coaster, for example, was one of the dreams. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's viable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like what's a dream for your neighborhood? I would love a roller coaster <laughs> in my neighborhood. <laughs> Bro, I, I love would love that. a roller coaster too. That'd be incredible. Just one. Yeah. Just one. They, they roller did. Coaster. They actually, yeah. So we did this project I actually called. Uh, so, you know, th- a lot of this was, you know, very, very organic conversations that were happening of around the dinner table. But uh, that actually birthed uh, a project that we had called the Dream Board Project. So we put whiteboards throughout the whole community um, and attached a Sharpie to it with the the question at the top, what's your dreams for your neighborhood? And folks mm-hmm. would write down and someone actually wrote down one roller coaster and they underlined one two, two or three times. Like they, uh, they underlined it like we, two's too much. We don't want two. <laughs> But just one. Kenton's not big enough for that. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> That's amazing. Just one roller coaster. Man, I love uh, that idea because we were just talking about like uh, roller peop- coasters. Well, roller coasters, <laughs> but uh, people um, who have these sincere problems, um, like they also have the solutions. We don't yeah. tend to think that, and so right. I love that practice on a very practical level of just right. like, yeah, what are your dreams? Tell yeah. us. Um, so I. Uh, I was thinking as you're talking, um, like some of those, all, all those uh, desires, those dreams were kind of surrounding homes or businesses or access. And I, um, I actually remember being on the Flourish website mm. also a couple of days ago and watched that video where you talk about like um, the idea we 
commonly spout off, which is teach a man to fish. What is it? It's yeah, d- give a man a fish, he'll eat for a, a day. I just blanked as I yeah, said. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to yeah. follow through on yeah, this. Yeah. I forget what it is. Yeah, but give a man a fish, yep. eat for a day, teach a man a fish, eat for a lifetime. Yeah, and you spoke into that and said the question we have to ask is who owns the pond? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, uh, do people have access um, to the pond and to the resources that mm-hmm. they need to even fish right or to be taught to fish right what happens when the pond's polluted what right. happens when all the fish have been taken by someone else you know who, right who owns the pond right so i think that's uh, a really good illustration for what we're talking about but i'm curious like as uh so people were sharing these dreams mm-hmm. um for their neighborhood and a lot of it had to do with place and and all those things surrounding that how did um those dreams turn into initially uh, a church like yeah. it doesn't for you know even for me and probably for a lot of people it's like wait that doesn't necessarily make sense right of like right. why why a church out right. of that right you know? well i mean i think now in hindsight we realize like there wasn't a church in this neighborhood actually mm-hmm. i want to take that back there's a parish here there wasn't like, there wasn't a congregation and the, the church was in this neighborhood uh, but there wasn't a congregation established in this neighborhood. Um, but it very quickly became, these were just meals where we were le- legitimately just having meals. And then neighbors would come and they would have struggles they would go through. Uh, uh, someone's you know, husband or father was being deported and we would cry with them and we would pray with them. And we would uh, eventually start this practice of, hey, let's go around and say something we're thankful for. You know, let's let's practice goodness. And then that evolved into, is everyone okay if like we just like like Maria's husband's being deported? Can we like pray for her? And so mm-hmm. prayer became a part of the ethos. And then uh, eventually folks got wind that uh, I was in seminary. And so then they had theological questions that they started to ask. And so scripture exploration became one of the things that we had talked about. But pretty soon we were in our living room looking around and saying, did we just did we just form a church? You know, because it, it this feels very, very much like church. And do we want to make a go at doing this and putting putting some some skin on the bones, so to speak, uh, and starting to put some practices uh, into play that can maybe uh, mobilize this to proliferate throughout our community. And so, uh, you know, we as a as a community looked around and said, "Yeah, I think th- I think this is you know what we are being led into." And so then it started to grow, and one house became two houses, two houses became three, and so we had this. This this network of of house churches really uh, that became radial church, but our neighbors welcomed us in, and again it, it was years before there was radial church uh, here in the neighborhood. It mm-hmm. was simply trying to be good neighbors, trying to practice hospitality, um, sharing life with the folks that lived alongside of us, and mm-hmm. then slowly this this thing called radial emerged. Yeah. That's great. I, I love that story of um, or just like the evolution that mm-hmm. took place in relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And something yeah. came out of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think it's interesting when um, like churches uh, like radio mm-hmm. are interested in the kinds of things you guys are interested in. Yeah. And like when you hear these dreams of people in this neighborhood, like people, we don't make that connection to like, oh, the church cares about that. Sure. Or should care about that yeah. or has some skin in the game in that. Yeah. yeah. And so um so it's just cool to see like those things weren't bifurcated. Right, right. For you guys. Right. Um like those were one and the same. Yeah. Like yeah. uh it's the spiritual what have you is not separate from this. Right. So uh, quote unquote like temporal Right. Why do you want to own a home? Why? Right. Like, whatever. Uh, so well, we miss the theological significance of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if churches are going to start to practice being a localized church, I think we need to like understand that there is a theological rationale for it. And uh, we wholeheartedly believe that placemaking is the practice of re- reconciliation. Right, like when we. What talk, do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, if so, if we take a step back, right? Like God is the placemaking God. Right, the the very act of creation was God creating a place, 
right? Creation was placemaking. When we start to look at the the entire uh, narrative of Scripture, it is as Walter Brueggemann says, the dominant theme is place, right? The promise that what what does God uh, give to humanity when he makes humanity the garden, right? It's it, he places them. What is the discipline for when when the fall occurs, they are displaced. What is the thing that he promises in the covenant? to Abram, Abraham, place. What is the thing that when he uh, calls Moses to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt, what's the promise that he's going to give them? Place. What's the trauma of the exile being displaced, right? Hmm. And even, I think this even reframes how we approach Jesus, right? Hmm. If we go back and look at the prophetic literature, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah was not that you get to live forever because Jesus died and rose again. The promise of the Messiah was that the Messiah is going to end exile. Mm. The, the, the Messiah is going to end your displacement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jesus talks about this, right? Jesus even says, I go to prepare a place for you. Paul picks up on this too. When Paul's talking about you know, Anthony and I are having this conversation right now, and if we could say, you know, the, 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 the process of, of helping one another, of Anthony helping Dustin become fully the Dustin that God created Dustin to be, or Dustin helping Anthony become fully the Anthony that God created Anthony to be, he uses this word edify. That's, that's, that's the word to construct a building, to construct a place. And mm-hmm. then it ends with the city, this place. So it is the dominant theme strung throughout it. And so... Placemaking is the act of image-bearing our God into our world. Hmm. How are folks going to trust a Jesus who says he prepares a place for them if we do not prepare a place with our neighbors ourselves? Hmm. Um, And so when we start to talk about reconciliation and what placemaking means to that, the mission of God, if we could distill it down to its, its most basic, you know, sort of wrote definition, it, it's it's the elimination of distance. Hmm. It's the elimination of both relational and spatial distance between God and humanity, humanity itself, humanity and creation. But what happens when the built environment, the places that we construct actually propagate that distance? What hmm. happens when where we live, how we live, uh, and in the places that we live, what, if, what, what happens when those actually create more distance between us and the land? What happens when they create more distance between us and one another? Mm. I'd argue that it actually propagates distance between us and God. Uh, and so eliminating space by making place, uh, we are practicing in that reconciliation, the elimination of that distance between God and ourselves, uh, ourselves and one another, ourselves and creation. That's a game changer. <laughs> I mean, for how churches interact right? in anywhere yeah like yeah, any yeah. all churches are somewhere so therefore yes. it affects them wherever they are right um right. if they buy into that yeah. uh theological um uh construct yeah you know that yeah. narrative i guess throughout um scripture so that's good um how like going back to uh like those dreams and and how that kind of connected to planning a church. Um, how has like over the years that evolved? Mm-hmm. Like uh, how has uh, the posture towards your neighbors as now an established church in the community? Like um, it started with these dreams. Yeah. Um, and now people are in this community of radio church. And what has it looked like for you guys to um, kind of like develop and deepen that that listening posture, that um, that uh, holistic mm-hmm. posture towards your neighbors? Like, what are some key elements of that? I yeah. guess, along the way. Uh, the the first I would say is uh, I I love our friends the Sepoy in Philadelphia. Uh, they they kind of have three R's that describe the folks that are part of their community. So they have remainers, indigenous folks from the neighborhood they're in that root themselves there, are not leaving, are going to fight for the place they have. Uh, they have returners, folks who are from there, left. All right, this, so this is the LeBron James, right? This mm. is the, the, the Chance the Rapper, right? Like the folks that have left but returned for the betterment 
of their place. And then there's relocators, folks who are not from there, but move in to participate, uh, to come alongside of the folks who are there uh, to see something new uh, born out of those dreams. And so uh, that, that's been, uh, I think, a really good rubric for us to internalize who we are uh, and what our community is. One of the things, and why I bring this up, one of the things that we noticed was that as these meals grew into the church and we, were, we had these house churches, a fair amount of the folks that were participating in Radial uh, did not live in our neighborhood. Some of them were from the area, had moved away, but were attracted back in uh, because of where we're at. Others were, so, you know, like that kind of potential returner, right? Other folks were not indigenous to our neighborhood, but um, the DNA, the ethos of it, they were attracted to. Um, And unbeknownst to us, uh, we didn't catch on to this uh, early on, but we started noticing that some of these folks that were not from the neighborhood or were not living in the neighborhood uh, at that point in time, but had before, were starting to move back in. Hmm. Um, and over the course of about 18 months, we had a, roughly a dozen or so families relocate to come into the neighborhood to say, it seems really weird to drive in to share life with these folks and then to leave, you know, hmm. uh, I, I'd really, really like to actually live here with alongside of them. And so that was one of the things that we realized, oh, something's happening here when when a dozen folks have moved in to share life here. Now, yeah. I want to like pump the brakes a little bit because uh, done recklessly, that can lead to gentrification and mm-hmm. just, you know, rising property values and those sorts of things. And, and so uh, what paired with that was actually the formation of Flourish, uh, which was this 501c3 that we formed. Uh, at the same time in our neighborhood and listening to our neighbors, when we ask, you know, uh, why, uh, uh, let me, let me back up and share an anecdotal story story. I was talking to my neighbor Clark, uh, a few years back and we were just going, we were, we were literally just going, I was going over to his house to play 2k on, on his Xbox <laughs> and, uh, Best conversations happen over 2k. Right. Right. And he, man, he just looked ragged. You know, he was looking rough and I said, you know, like what's going on? He said, man, I'm just fried from working at work. I'm working close to 60 hours a week just to, just to make it and asked him like, well, what's going on? And started to pry a bit into his finances and come to find out that a disproportionately higher percentage of his income was going to rent of, of a house that quite frankly was a slum, you know, he did not own. Um, and so you're bleeding money and utilities because, you know, you don't have energy efficient windows and your furnace is 30 years old and there's, you know, uh, the house is in real disarray. Come to find out that, that Clark wasn't in poverty because of lack of employment. Pa- Clark wasn't in poverty because of reckless spending habits or, or unwise spending habits. It was because he didn't actually have access to place. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, what we found was that kind of rung true for most of the folks in our neighborhood, that a lot of the renters in our neighborhood are charged a disproportionately higher percentage of their income to rent um, homes that are not good. And, and these predatory landlords are able to do that because these are vulnerable folks uh, that, that lack access to the resources to have any other option. Mm-hmm. And so we started thinking, and you know, I looked up while I'm talking to Clark. I looked up on my phone on the Otters website and found out that in 2010, the house had been bought for eight thousand bucks. And so in the course of the year, he could have paid off his house. What he was being charged around, he could have paid off his house and then some. He could have probably right. bought a couple. If he had houses. the chance to buy it, yeah. If he yeah. had the chance to buy it, yeah. uh, credit was fine. All the all these sorts of things, and but the houses in our neighborhood weren't worth enough to merit a loan from a bank, and so. This started a cycle of, okay, so we have these folks moving in, but yet we also have folks that are part of our community, part of our church that are really, really in a vulnerable spot here. What, what, what's going to happen? And so we thought, man, if we could just get enough cash on hand, we could, we could buy this house ourselves, gut it, remodel it, and then create a pathway for homeownership and like provide like uh, actual good home. And that way we see an equitable sort of balance happening in the neighborhood. So it's not Mm -hmm. just folks from the outside flooding in because of 
you know, whatever reason or rationale, but we're actually rooting, allowing our, our neighbors who are asking for homeownership to root themselves here. And yeah. so, yeah, that's, that's really what birthed Flourish, right. uh, this nonprofit um, that's really a neighborhood-led CDC. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I w- oh, I was thinking about uh, just like a resource for people who are skeptical about like the predatory landlord thing that mm-hmm. you're talking about. Um, if you're more interested in that, Evicted uh, by Matthew Desmond yes, yeah. is a great book um, to get your hands on and uh, explore mm-hmm. more of what you're talking about. Yep. Um, it's uh, specifically about, I think, Milwaukee, um, but it kind of speaks to mm-hmm. other areas, other cities, obviously. So um, I guess uh, as I kind of want to close out here, um, but I have a couple more questions for you. Uh I, I guess as we're talking about this, I'm thinking like, what is at stake if churches don't participate in this kind of place-based, rooted in their neighborhood or suburb or rural mm-hmm. area? Like, mm-hmm. I think it, it speaks to all those places yeah, as yeah. well. Um, like, what's at stake if we don't? Yeah. You know? um, so I think the detriment of our neighborhoods uh, quite quite simply, I mean, to go back to another Dustin growing up story, the, all the... <laughs> Is all, there other animals dying in this story? Uh, uh, Just, no, not, not an animal dying okay. in this story, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but one, my dad actually, our living room was converted into a crocodile tank. Um, and crocodiles, yeah. <laughs> and, and crocodiles, as I learned as a child, have what we call negligible senescence. Uh, and what that means is yeah. there's no life expectancy on crocodiles. Uh, their bodies, there's what no, is like they can live for, they perpet like theoretically they could perpetually live forever because right. Cause they're basically dinosaurs. Basically. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when you have negligible senescence because your body, you know, when you and I, as you know, men living in the United States in the year 2018, uh, what's our life expect like 76.8 years or something like something like that. Right. Once we hit age 21, 22, we start the aging process. Our bodies start to, to shift, to change. We start, we stop growing, right? And then we start aging. Uh, so uh, through childhood, through, through youth and adolescence, we grow and then we start aging. Uh, our metabolisms change, our, our bodies become more susceptible to disease, um, and our, meta- you know, our metabolic needs you know, start to alter all that sort, sort of thing like that. Creatures with negligible senescence, such as crocodiles, and I promise I'm getting back to what's no, at stake in churches. I trust it. Uh, they 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 don't have that, so they just perpetually grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. Uh, they're uh, they are not susceptible to disease because they don't have an aging process. So they just they grow older, they grow bigger, and they theoretically grow healthier, and yet they still die. Crocodiles still die. And when we explore actually how they die, it's, it's actually quite, it is quite morbid. My crocodile didn't die. So, yeah. so, okay, we're good. Uh, but they actually starve to death. And the reason why they starve to death is because they keep growing with every year they're alive and their metabolic needs don't, don't shift. They need to consume more. They need to consume more and more and more and more. And they actually consume the environment around them. They actually destroy the ecosystem that's around them because they are constantly eating. And the eventually, once they consume all of the life that's in the environment around them, there's no more things that they can consume to stay alive, and they eventually starve. And that environment is destroyed and will not rebound until the crocodile dies. In the same way, we are seeing a trend in the States that placeless churches are a lot like crocodiles. We need to consume people out and extract people out of their neighborhoods, out of their environments, out of the places that they live to come to our thing. But eventually the neighborhoods and the communities around where our churches are at start to suffer for it. Uh, Glenn Smith, uh, probably about 12 years ago, came uh, offered 12 indicators of what a transforming, what a healthy city looks like. When you start to look at these indicators, the city in the United States, actually in North America, that has the lowest score of these indicators is Dallas, Texas. And Dallas has more churches per capita than any other metro city on the continent. 
Cities like Portland have the highest of these indicators, but have very, very, very few churches per capita when compared to the rest of the country. So what's at stake is the detriment of our cities. If we do not root ourselves in a place, if we continue to leave our place to go someplace else to shop, to play, to work, to worship, then we will see this erosion of our communities more and more and more. Hmm. That's significant, yeah. I would say. Like, um, And I think it's like a... Uh, it fits within the realm of a prophetic challenge, mm. I think, to our, um, I mean, ever since like 80s and 90s, what church has been in like the seeker sensitive movement yeah. and the church growth movement. And I still feel like we have the remnants of that. We're trying to dress it up a little differently. Well, w- well, with with all of it, all of these movements uh, are again just like the small group movement that mm-hmm. happened. They they all ignore the X factor in it, and that is being placed, mm-hmm. right? So we see the church growth movement, we see the church health movement, we see the small the small group movement, we see the seeker movement, the seeker sensitive movement. We saw the emergent movement, and we are. Uh, I think right in the, the the midst of the missional movement, but even missional communities have people leaving their community to go serve some sort of, and, and I'm not making a disparaging comment of having a community that goes and addresses homelessness at another part of town or sex trafficking or anything like that. I mean, those are God-given calls and missions, but when we do not root ourselves in the actual place that we are, then those propagate and perpetuate. Mm-hmm. Not not even to mention, like, uh, going back to some of our original comments of, like, do we really understand right. the problems? Right. Like, it's it's right. hard to say yes to that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's great and helpful. Um, so a lot right along with that, like, what, uh, I mean, we've talked about a lot of what you have learned mm-hmm. in the process of planting radial, starting Flourish. Um, what are the things that you have learned that you would, like, want to instill uh, in someone leading a church in an urban community or um, anywhere, honestly. Yeah, again, yeah. like I think this whole conversation is about anywhere, yeah. um, but it is it does have a specificity to urban, urban spots. Um, what would you encourage them with? What would you challenge them with? Yeah. Like, what are some things you would yeah, say? Yeah, I would say, uh, A, listen. Listen, listening, 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 listening. That's, that's the number one... I think I th- think that we've learned uh, and that we try to practice, uh, and, and and admittedly we continually falter and are feeble in it. Right? Like there's mm-hmm. always those things where oh I got this idea and we don't do the long hard work of actually pausing from the top down too. Yeah, like, yeah. I have this idea from yeah. the top. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, going a paradigm shift from vision casting to vision cultivation. Mm-hmm. Vision cultivation is listening. It's gathering people together, communally discerning um, ideas and feelings and dreams uh, with with one another. So listening, I think, is the number one thing. Not just listening to your board or your church, but listening to your your neighborhood. Uh, I think is essential. Um, it's, it's very, very problematic if you have a, a staff. I, well, I mean, I, I, I am of the, the mindset that the pastor ought to live in the neighborhood. The pastor, whoever is leading your church, ought to be able to walk to worship. If, if you cannot, then priority number one means relocating. Uh, and that's that's a hard thing for some folks. Uh, I've I know many churches that that even still they have parsonages, and the parsonage is on the opposite side of town, or not even in town at all. Um, that's 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 uh, that's very very troubling. We'll say yeah. so so re, so um, living in and amongst folks there. Um, but that also means so so not only does it mean that the leaders of your church need to relocate to. Uh, be part of the community, but you ought to be looking for leaders who are already in the community. Mm. And so inviting leaders who are are neighbors who are already in, your neighbors that are already there, already living there, ought to be on the leadership board of your church. Mm. Um, I think that's one of the things that that we've learned that, that uh, that we started saying... Gosh, you know, you just like what you said, you know the ideas and solutions for what this community needs more than than me. I've only mm-hmm. lived here for now nine years, but right. you've lived here for thirty. You know what this this community needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what this community could thrive with, um, and uh, and so 
uh, practicing that uh, was is another thing that I would say be essential for churches. Yeah, that's really good, and I think it'll be. I mean, it, I've learned a lot in this conversation, so thank you. No, thank uh, you for being on. It's been really fun. Thanks uh, for sitting, visiting our neighborhood, of course, and visiting your rabbits. They've yes. been just traveling like around, free range yeah. rabbits in the house. Just, yes, yes, yeah. Uh, it's been nice. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to Storied Cities. Hope you enjoyed the show and the conversation I had with Dustin. It was a really fun uh, and very thoughtful dialogue. So hope you uh, gleaned a lot from it. Um, As I said, any of the resources we mentioned in the show, books or things of that nature, uh, you can find those in the show notes, uh, as well as ways to connect with Dustin. So social media handle, um, things like that. Find that in the show notes uh, below. Um, And as any good podcaster does, I have to draw your attention to the review section on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts um, and just ask uh, politely, kindly uh, to give us a review. And I know an ask to everyone is an ask to no one. Um, But if you would uh, find it in your heart to consider that, that'd be great. Uh, Just in terms of helping people find out about us as we're a new podcast, um, it's hugely helpful. And if you have constructive feedback or criticism, um, I'd love to hear that since we're, uh, you know, new. Uh, I'd love to continue to learn about how to do this better and how to uh, serve the listeners. So uh, shoot me an email. You can find that on our website. Thanks so much. And we'll catch you next time. Bye.